Today we are uh, continuing our study through 1 Corinthians, and I've entitled our time together, Spirit-Empowered Clarity in Corporate Worship. Spirit-Empowered Clarity in Corporate Worship. Today's passage is in 1 Corinthians 14. It is probably the clearest passage in Scripture that gives you more detail into how we are to understand the New Testament gift of tongues, as well as the practice of Spirit-empowered prophecy. Because we know that not everybody has the gifts of tongues and prophecy, and in, in a conservative church like ours, there's probably a small handful of you who have experienced these gifts in the power of the Spirit. Uh, I want to give some application that extends this to everyone. So as you're hearing teaching on the gift of tongues, even if you don't have that gift, the key is in an intelligible prayer life, you can experience intimacy with God. Tongues is a gift given for devotional purposes. Yes, people are edified because people are lifted up. But it is an experience where you actually feel the Spirit interceding through you with words that you can't explain. Now, with words that we can understand, we can experience and seek an intimate relationship with God. And we can seek his presence. Prophecy is the clear, spirit-prompted, and spirit-empowered delivery of his word. Applications of scripture, references to scripture. God's word is the ultimate judge of whether or not a prophecy is true and whether it's really from God. Because the Holy Spirit would not contradict himself. The Spirit of God inspired all 66 books of the Bible. There would never be a prophecy that you cannot see lined up in Scripture. So therefore, one, we seek the intimacy of God. Two, we seek the clear truth, the Word of God in a world of opinion and many voices. But today's passage takes us into a corporate context, and that will help you understand that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is speaking to a public assembly. He's talking about when the church gathers in a public assembly that the gift of prophecy is greater, it is superior to the gift of tongues. And so if you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we are going to look at verses 1 to 25 today and we'll wrap up the rest of chapter 14 Tomorrow's, I mean, uh, not tomorrow, I wish tomorrow, next Sunday. So today's sermon is about spirit-empowered clarity in corporate worship. Next week, we're going to see spirit-empowered order in corporate worship. So the first part is about clarity. The second part of 1 Corinthians 14 is all about order in worship because the Holy Spirit is wants to be clear and He's going to be orderly. He's not going to be chaotic, right? And He's not going to be unintelligible or unclear. So... If you read 1 Corinthians 14 for yourself, you'll see those two themes come through. But point number one, point number one is drawn from verses 1 to 5. And point number one is the greater benefit of prophecy and in corporate worship. So that's the context. He's not saying the tongues is not a great gift. He's not saying the tongues is unimportant. He's saying when you come to church and when you're in a public assembly, that there's a greater benefit of prophecy in, the, in corporate worship. So that's point number one. Let me read to you now verses 1 to 5 where you'll see this very clearly. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Verse 2. For one who speaks in, in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, and that's why I believe it is a prayer gift. Not to men, but to God. If you're talking to God, you're praying. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, 
unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So very clear from the scriptures. It's a context of public worship. There's the individual devotional life versus a public assembly. Okay. Last week, uh, verse 1 was already explained by Pastor Albert. And so in chapter 13, uh, Pastor Albert did an excellent job spending two weeks explaining why love is the context for which all spiritual gifts must be exercised. And apart from love, the gifts are ineffective. Apart from love, the gifts are powerless. Apart from love, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit aren't actually happening if people are trying to exercise those gifts apart from Christ-like love. So we all understand that. So as an application of chapter 13, chapter 14, verse 1 gives an imperative. It's a command. It says, pursue love. And then when it says earnestly desire, that's also in the imperative, in the original languages. It's earnestly desire. It's not just desire. It's not just want the gifts. It's earnestly desired, those spiritual gifts, plural. Now, it doesn't say earnestly desire the, the charismatic gifts over and against the, the other gifts in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where all the gifts are valuable, all the gifts are necessary for the body to grow up into maturity, and all the gifts are distributed according to the sovereign choice of, the, of God and given through the Spirit, that we are to desire all spiritual gifts that are given to us, and we know that we're not going to have all the gifts. But then there is one gift that as we pray for gifts, I think it's okay, and, and if God doesn't give you the gift, that's okay. okay. But he does say, especially that you may prophesy. That's the only gift. So our prayers should be, Holy Spirit, help us to discover develop and deploy our unique spiritual gifts and lord if you will grant it i pray for the gift of prophecy i mean i i think that that would be a clear application of this scripture now verse two it says for the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to god and that sets the context right that the context is that tongues happens most likely in the context of prayer when you are speaking to god right um and so, again, this is a public assembly. Verse 2 is clear now. Now, verse 2, the one with the gift of tongues, what we read, it says, speaks not to men, but directly to God. And if so, if you're speaking directly to God, then I want you to, uh, to think about what is happening in when you're speaking in tongues. When you're speaking in tongues, how is it that he tells them to pray for the gift of interpretation. He says, if you have the gift of tongues, pray also for interpretation. Which means that not everybody who's gifted with the gift of tongues has the gift of interpretation. So what happens when you speak in the gift of tongues? Now, I don't have the gift of tongues. So just from interviewing a few individuals, um, my roommate spoke in tongues at, in Bible college as well. So I heard it all the time. Didn't understand a thing. Um, and also from really something that's really helpful for me was uh, the teaching of Chuck Smith. Of, uh, he's the, the late Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel. Uh, you can go on YouTube and type in Chuck Smith, 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I don't take some of the same interpretation with him, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, but that was probably one of the most insightful, blessed uh, sermons that I've ever heard, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, explained by Chuck Smith. I miss listening to Pastor Chuck. I, I really do. I never knew that as, as a young man. I'm going on a tangent now, but listening to 107.9, and, you know, there weren't too many Christian stations 20 years ago, so you listen to 107.9, and it just so happens during the times where you're commuting, either to school or back to school, to work, from work, it's uh, Chuck Smith. Slow talking, right? The Word of God says, you know, and, 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 and Chuck Smith, he just slowly explains. So I, I, I implore you, go to YouTube, 1 Corinthians 14. Don't do that now. Please hear me now. But uh, 1 Corinthians 14, hear his teaching. Okay, hear his teaching, and you will be edified. Okay, um, but Pastor Chuck Smith teaching on 1 Corinthians 14 explains a little bit of the understanding. But if you have the gift of tongues and you don't have interpretation, what happens is that you know what you're doing. Right? You know that you're praying. So, for example, you're praying for somebody's healing. You're praying for somebody. You're praying for a church. You're praying for God to move. 
So you know what you're praying for. You know who you're praying for. But in a moment of intimacy, you the spirit begins to intercede with groanings in a language that you don't understand. So you don't understand what is being said unless you have the gift of interpretation. But you clearly know who or what you're praying for. And, and, and you walk away with just experiencing intimacy with God. Right? And so that is why tongues, he doesn't say the tongues is a bad thing. He actually says, I wish that all of you would speak in tongues. And later, he's going to say that he speaks in many tongues. Paul is going to say that. But he's saying that when you take that into a corporate public assembly, the only person that's probably edified is you. Because, because nobody else gets to come into that intimacy. Now, if there's interpretation, there's, there is an edification where someone interprets and they hear the prayer, and that would be almost like coming to prayer meeting and hearing someone else pray in English, right? Someone would interpret somebody's intimate prayer, and you'd be like, wow, I was really blessed hearing that prayer. Now, next week, you'll see that Paul's very clear. He says, at most, two to three people should pray in tongues in a worship service, one after the another, another, waiting for interpretation. Otherwise, don't pray in the worship service in tongues. And he says, at most three. But what we see practiced in churches today is that during the, the music set, everybody's going, speaking in tongues. right? Or during prayer, everyone's breaking out. There's no interpretation given. There's no pause. And so, so if we look at 1 Corinthians 14, it tells us how tongues, if it's practiced in a corporate worship service, how it's supposed to be practiced, which we don't see often today. But ultimately, tongues is a devotional practice. It is a devotional gift given to some, but not all. And so Paul's very clear. He says tongues builds up the individual. You're not speaking to men. You're speaking to God. It is a prayer gift, right? It is a unique prayer gift. And so, um, and, and also, uh, he says prophecy, you're speaking to men. It builds up the whole church. But also, prophecy leads to edification, which means a building, encouragement, consolation. It could be rebuke. It, be, it could be correction. And so once again, every gift is needed, but especially prophecy. Now, when you go down to verse 5, you see that in order for there to be a corporate benefit, tongues requires interpretation, right? And so, so again, that interpretation, how do you know that the interpretation is accurate? Because if the person who speaks in tongues doesn't have the gift themselves, if someone else comes to you and says, that's what you're saying, how do you know? And again, the Spirit doesn't create any confusion. So I, I still think you would need someone with the gift of prophecy to come along and say, actually, I can tell you that that's from the Word of God. That, that actually what, what you just uttered in tongues and what this person just interpreted, it's in Scripture right here. Or it's a, it's a clear application of a scriptural teaching and principle. So that's the prophetic Word of God, that the Word of God is sola scriptura. The Word of God, the Scriptures are authoritative over the church. The Scriptures provide your boundaries for the gift of tongues, for interpretation, as well as what prophecy is itself, right? But, but we have the best explanation of what the gift of tongues would be in Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26, it says, The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 has already explained that these are unintelligible words. He doesn't say it's a foreign language where someone else would actually come and understand it. He says, you're not speaking to men. You're speaking directly to God. Right? You're, you're, not, you're not translating for men. You're speaking directly to God. It's for God, uh, and it's the Spirit interceding on your behalf. But prophecy, we've explained prophecy in detail uh, on a Tuesday night Sunday school, so I'm not going to go into detail on prophecy. We spent about an hour explaining how pro what prophecy was in the, in the New Testament, how it's practiced today. All I'm going to clearly say that it is the Spirit-prompted, Spirit-empowered communication of His Word. That's what it is, okay? It's not a prepared sermon, but the Spirit can take over and use what you prepared, okay?
okay? It's not just knowledge or teaching because you have non-Christians who can study the Bible and teach in university settings, the, the knowledge and, and the stories of the Bible. It is when the Spirit moves in His timing and conveys and communicates His Word through individuals with this gift where others feel the Spirit's power. And they are convicted either to repentance, either to change, or either to be inspired themselves that this is truly the Word of God. And so there is a standard for judging prophecy. And what is that standard? Once again, it's Scripture. And Chuck Smith does such a good job explaining in his sermon that basically the Holy Spirit would never contradict himself. So even in a worship service, if, if somebody is already speaking the Word of God, then you're not going to have like a bunch of prophecies going and confusing people, right? So, so what is the standard to judge prophecy? It is Scripture. The Spirit-inspired Word is the standard to judge anybody who feels or thinks that they are speaking the Spirit-inspired Word of God, right? So Scripture becomes your standard. Now, Moving to point number two, verses 6 to 12, we see the limitation of tongues in corporate worship. Not the disparaging of tongues, not that tongues is negative, but the limitation of tongues. Meaning, tongues, the benefit is limited when you enter into a public assembly. The limitation of tongues in corporate worship. Now, let me read to you, and I want you to see this with your very own eyes. Verses 6 to 12, it says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Right? So when you talk about revelation, you're talking about the Spirit-revealed Word of God. When you talk about Spirit-inspired knowledge, you're talking about God's revealed knowledge, the Word of God. When you talk about prophecy, you're talking about the Word of God being prophetically prompted and spoken. When you're talking about teaching, what teaching is this? Your context of church, teaching of God's Word, the apostles' teaching. So all of this is talking about what, so you can actually say, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you the Bible? Now some of you are going to accuse me of, man, you're way too conservative. No, I, I believe that the gifts exist today, but I believe that the gifts need to be practiced in line with Scripture. Right? So even, is, verse 7, it says, If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, it's not clear, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. And none is without meaning. So this is why I don't think that tongues is a foreign language. It's different from Acts chapter 2 where people understood it. right? Because he's using the illustration of foreign language to, to say this is, this is not. right. Foreign languages have meaning. But unintelligible speech, which is the word of the Spirit, which is an angelic tongue, it, it doesn't have meaning if you can't understand it, right? It's a Spirit interceding in a heavenly language. So it says, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and a speaker a foreigner to me. But he's just said that no language is without meaning. So he's trying to tell you that tongues is not a foreign language. It's not like Spanish, you know, or uh, or French, right? It is an angelic tongue. In verse 12, it says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Which means, he's just said, tongues is good. He wishes that the Corinthians would speak in tongues. But he's saying that when you come into service, if everybody's goal, which is what's happening in Corinth, if everything, everyone's goal is simply just to speak in tongues and be in their individual little worlds, then no one's going to get edified. No one's going to get built up because half the people, uh, the majority of the people don't understand. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. And the one gift that's going to build up is prophecy. Right? Just turn to Ephesians 4, if you will. Turn to Ephesians 4 in your Bible. Ephesians 4. And in Ephesians 4, Look with me at verse 11. Ephesians 4.11, it says, And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry for what? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain what? Unity. So what is what does it mean to build up? Well, it means to mature. What does it mean to mature? A mature church is a united church. Until we all attain unity. What does unity look like? All the spiritual gifts functioning well. That means that a healthy body is when your, your body parts are all working together, your internal organs are all working together, and everything is united and working the way that God designed it. Right? So it says that we need to grow up into maturity, into the fullness of Christ. And so if you look at the apostles spoke prophetically, the prophets, prophets speak prophetically, the evangelists also speak the gospel prompted by the Spirit where people take that teaching of the gospel and convict souls and people get saved. The pastors have to, in some way, use a prophetic uh, gift and teachers. Now, not every teacher has a prophetic gift, but if, if prophecy is, is the word of God, then you're going to have some teachers exercising prophecy. So it makes sense why he would say that everyone should strive for prophecy because prophecy is the gift that builds up the church. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a first for me. This is awesome. <laughs> so um, drive-in service. Now, verses 6 to 12, it provides several illustrations, right? So it, it talked about the musical instruments needing to make a distinct note. I don't play instruments, but a lot of you do. Uh, so maybe you can teach me about this. But if the instrument does not make a distinct note, you won't know what is being played. And if a war instrument, if you can't recognize that that is the war instrument, you will not know that it's time for battle. Right, so he's giving several illustrations, and then he gives the one about the um, foreign language. Now look at verses 13 to 15. He says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. You see, that's why I don't think it's a foreign language. Because your mind is working when there's something that's intelligible. It would be an insult for me to say, I don't understand Spanish, therefore it's unintelligible. I would never say that to someone, right? But I could say, I don't understand a heavenly angelic tongue. It's unintelligible. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. So there's a distinction here between praying with your mind versus your spirit, it's simply referring to understanding. Again, what's the main point of this section? Clarity. The person gifted with tongues should pray for the gift of interpretation so that he or she can have clarity and understanding. Otherwise, he or she is simply praying with their emotions, but I do think there's a benefit in feeling the intimacy. There's no actual cognitive understanding of the words being spoken. And Paul desires both. So he's basically saying, if you have the gift of tongues, pray hard for interpretation so that you can pray with both, right? You can have your spirit and your mind working. Now look at verses 16 and 19. It says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, your emotions, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Now, why aren't they being built up? Because they don't understand. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And that's why we don't condemn tongues. Paul himself spoke with tongues. He said, uh, we're not supposed to brag, but Paul's putting the brag on here. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Well, Paul, you are the blessed apostle. And in verse 19, it says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words just for you guys who know, he's not talking about the five points, okay? But, but, but five words with my mind in order to instruct others, not talking about the tulip, then 10,000 words in a tongue. 
So he says, even though he speaks in tongues more than all of the Corinthians, he would rather speak five words of clear speech that everybody could understand to instruct people so that everyone would be built up rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so next week we'll look at this more in 1 Corinthians 14. But moving to point number three, point number three is the purpose of tongues and prophecy in corporate worship. So we see in this morning, point number one, the greater benefit of prophecy in corporate worship. We've seen point number two, the limitation of tongues in corporate worship. Point number three, well, what is the purpose then of tongues and prophecy in corporate worship? And we see that in, in verses 20 and 25. Let me first read you the first half of this latter part. He says in verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Remember Ephesians 4, maturity, grow up into maturity. Do not be immature, he's saying. Corinthians, you're being immature by elevating the individual gift over the corporate gift, the gifts that would build up the body. He says, brothers, do, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. So here he's saying, be an infant in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. And while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for, for believers. Okay, let's explain this. Okay, When he's telling them to stop thinking like children, he's, he's talking about we need to be mature. But then he goes and says you should be infants. That's a little confusing. So what is it? Do you want me to be, so maybe, uh, you know, you, you don't want me to be uh, immature but you want me to be an infant. When he says be infants in evil, he's talking about how infants are kind of innocent, like they don't know uh, what they're doing. They, I mean, infants are sinful. We, we know that, right? Infants are born into sin, but they don't know everything yet. They don't understand in the same way that they're being sinful. And so he's, he's saying, don't be ignorant, but be innocent as best as you can when it comes to the evil ways of this world. You know, sometimes non-Christians or even some really jaded Christians like Christians that need to be sanctified more, they'll look at these Christians, as certain Christians, they'll be like, you Christian, you're so naive. How could you give so much to the Lord? You really trust the Lord? Uh, you got to get some for your own too, right? So some, you hear that even from Christians. They don't have faith. They don't have that measure of faith. They look at certain Christians who are faithful as naive. They look at Christians like, oh, you guys are waiting until, until marriage to have sex? Huh, how naive. Poor you. So innocent. You know, goody two-shoes. You know how sometimes non-Christians will insult Christians that way? Why are you wasting your Sundays? Go play golf. Go sell. Go, go work or something. Make some more money. Right? What are you doing? Wasting your time. And, and in that way, it's okay if the world looks at us as foolish, naive, even they can call us ignorant and goody two-shoes. We don't think we're better than them. We just say, yeah, to the world, we're infants when it comes to the evil ways of this world, right? So when it comes to the standards of the world, which is driven by evil, we're infants. But it doesn't mean we're ignorant. We understand the sinful ways of this world. We understand how not to get ripped off. We understand how the church needs legal counsel and how the church needs policies and insurance. So, so we understand how the world works. We function in this world with maturity. That's what he means. He says, um, when, when he says, he says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature okay so be so you are not ignorant to the ways of evil but when it comes to evil you are okay being an infant to it being accused of being innocent now verse verse 21 when he talks about the law this is a little confusing now paul is actually quoting isaiah 28 which to us is not the law the law is the pentateuch right the law is the law of moses but the reason why he says the law is Isaiah 28 references Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. But in Isaiah 28, 11 to 12, the reason why Paul says the law, it is written, right, is he's speaking of a context of judgment. So what's happening in Isaiah 28 is that the prophet Isaiah is pronouncing judgment upon northern Israel. Why? 
because their prophets, the prophets of that local area, they mocked the warning of Isaiah. They mocked Isaiah by saying, Isaiah, your words are nonsense. And they actually made fun of him saying, your words, Isaiah, sound like baby talk. It sounds like gibberish. And Isaiah warns them. And he says that God is going to judge you by those who speak a foreign tongue. And you're not going to understand them. And so this would be fulfilled in 722 B.C. When the Syrians invaded northern Israel. So the context is judgment comes through hearing a language that is foreign to you. Because you're not going to hear and understand something that's intelligible to you in your Old Testament context, you're going to know that that's God's judgment. And that leads into verse 22. So verse 22, it says, Thus tongues are a sign not for those who already believe, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. What does he mean by that? He's saying that tongues have the capacity to cause those who unbelievers whose hearts are already hardened towards God to be even more confused and to mock God. Okay? So you can see how if people are speaking in tongues in church and you have a non-Christian who comes in or maybe they don't come in but in the but they already are antagonistic towards God. They don't believe in miracles, they don't believe in Jesus. They think that Christians are are foolish and dumb, and they hear this angelic speech, and they're like, what is that? That just proves how insane you guys are. And so what happens is when they hear the tongues, their hearts are further hardened. And so in that way, Paul's saying, when the unbeliever hears tongues, it could act as a means of judgment towards them, solidifying that their hearts are already hardened towards God. And therefore, in that context of judgment, Tongues are a sign not for believers who already believe, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, right? And so believers are saying, well, we want to hear the word of God. So we're going to understand and welcome God speaking to us. And so you got to understand Isaiah. Isaiah brought the prophecy and the people who believed him would be the believers. That's what he means. Prophecy is for the believers. It's because the believers in the Old Testament context would receive the prophetic word of Isaiah, while the unbelievers would be like, you're speaking gibberish to us. Even though it was clear and it was intelligible back in the Old Testament context. So once again, tongues could serve as a sign of judgment upon unbelief, on the other hand, intelligible speech means God is speaking to his people. It's a sign of his approval and a sign of his presence. Now, that's a clear explanation. Verses 23 and 25 are confusing, okay? Because Paul seems to contradict himself, but I don't think he is. I mentioned Chuck Smith's sermon that was such a blessing to me. If you listen to Chuck Smith's sermon, again, YouTube, 1 Corinthians 14, Chuck Smith, he says that this part of the sermon is scribal error because of the contradiction. So he says that, um, you know, it, it was a scribal error. I don't take that view, respectfully. I believe that every word of God is inerrant and is fully inspired. And so I don't see a contradiction. I think that Paul, in verse 23, extends the blessing of prophecy towards the unbelievers. So... In verse 22, he says, Tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, a sign of judgment, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but a sign of blessing for believers who receive it. He extends the blessing of prophecy to include believers in the New Testament. Okay? So follow me on this. With that context, look at verse 23. He says, If therefore the whole church comes together and speaks in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So verse 23 is consistent with verse 22. Verse 24 is not, and here's where I'm going to extend Paul's meaning, right? Verse 24 says, but if all prophesy 
And if an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convinced by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. So falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So you see why someone would say this is scribal error. Because in verse 22, he says the prophecy is not for unbelievers. But here in verse 24, he says the prophecy is for unbelievers. Well, he's just extending the potential of prophecy, not just to be a blessing to those who receive the word of God, but to the non-Christian who hears the prophecy and gets saved. Okay, so does that clarify for you your reading of your Bibles? It's very clear. There's no scribal error here. Okay, this is Paul extending the proclamation of the gospel. Now, what's happening in verse 24 and 25 is what happens when you and I receive the gospel. When you receive the gospel, you were at one time an unbeliever. Or maybe your parents brought, to, brought you to church as a kid, but you never fully understood. You never really surrendered to Jesus. It didn't make sense to you. It was like unintelligible speech when it came to conviction of your soul. But one day, somehow, someone is speaking prophetically and you're that unbeliever, you're that outsider, you come in and you're convicted. You're called to account the secrets of your heart. You realize that you are a sinner, that God sees you. You realize that you are now in God's presence. So falling on your face, you worship God and you declare that God is really among you. What is this? Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Johannine clarity. John chapter 1. I get excited when it comes to Jesus. John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. Is the Word prophetic? Well, the Word of God is prophecy, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made that was made, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of man. That light, that light shines in the darkness. It exposes the sins of your heart. That light, it, darkness will not over overcome it. That's what 1 Corinthians is talking about. It's talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 6 of John 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So John the Baptist bears witness about Jesus. That's how you know that this is talking about Jesus, that John the Baptist was pointing towards Jesus. He is the light. And it says that all might believe through Christ. He was not the light, but came to, uh, and it says, John the Baptist himself was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. Now you, you go down to verse 9. It says, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, the presence of God, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him, right? So the word of God himself comes and people say, Jesus, you're gibberish. We don't understand you. We don't receive you. His own people, the Jews, rejected him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive the prophecy, the prophetic word of God, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then verse 14, and the word, the prophetic word of God, the perfect prophet of God, the perfect fulfillment of all prophecy and everything that is prophesied points back towards Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of him and cried out, etc., etc. The word of God, Jesus Christ, uh, dwelt among us. And so now you go back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24 and 25. And with that gospel context, I'll read it to you again. But if all prophesy, meaning everyone is speaking the word of God, pointing back to Christ, pointing people to Christ. Even the unbeliever, the outsider enters, hearing about these words that are pointing people back to Christ. He is convicted by all that he hears. He's called to account that he needs to come before this question, who is Jesus Christ to you? The secrets of his heart are disclosed because he's met 
the light, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has met him. So falling on his face before Christ, the king, the one who sat on his throne before eternity, who came down, took on flesh, became man. He will worship. Now this man will fall before Christ and worship God and declare that God, the son of God, is really among us. That he came to dwell among us. I believe that he's real. I believe that he lives in my heart. This, in verse 24, 25, is talking about our God gospel conversion because the prophetic word became flesh in our hearts that is what paul means prophecy has the ability to bring non-christians to saving faith in christ therefore all the more we should pray for the gift to prophesy the big idea this morning is that Christ followers must pursue spiritual gifts with love, especially spirit-inspired words of clarity for greater edification. Once again, Christ followers must pursue spiritual gifts with love, especially spirit-inspired words of clarity for greater edification. Where does this show up in our lives? Well, we need Christ. We need words that point people to Christ. And so first, we live in a world of information overload and endless opinion, but people need to hear the word of God. The same is true for religion. This includes information overload on religion. You just go on the the web, uh, the internet, and you can Google Christianity, you can Google any Bible passage, you'll have all kinds of interpretations So how will you know what is true? Well, you have the Spirit-inspired prophetic word of Scripture. The prophetic word of Scripture is your standard. Does the interpretation match with Scripture? Well, what happens when you have multiple interpretations to one passage? The Holy Spirit's not going to confuse himself. He's not going to confuse you, so you have the rest of Scripture. Something called cross-referencing. And so when you look at scripture and when you look at how certain phrases and certain themes and certain points are discussed in other parts of scripture, scripture explains scripture and the Holy Spirit speaks prophetically through his entire word. And so in a world of over-information, we need to learn to seek God's presence. And when we seek God's presence, it can be very subjective what gives objectivity is the objective word of God. Second, we live in a world of endless influencers. It wasn't always this way. Endless influencers. This is different from information overload. We're talking about power and in a sense social authority. We're talking about the power to influence you daily. You just pick up your phone, you go on social media platforms, but God's prophetic word must bring us fresh clarity each and every day. Yet God's word is timeless. God's word is timeless, but God's word, it comes fresh. So here's the difference. Each and every day you have all of these voices trying to get into your heart and trying to get into your head. Now you have the word of God, and I think the temptation is to say the Bible's old. That's not fresh. The Bible's new. The meaning shouldn't change. Otherwise, that's heresy, right? There's no objective truth if, if, if it's subjectively interpreted each time. And so therefore, because the word of God is timeless and because the longer you are in Christ, the more you're familiar with the word of God, we tend to look for something fresh. That's where prophecy is different. Prophecy is not just studying the Bible for knowledge because that can be done from the flesh. Prophecy is when the spirit takes the very old good word And he uses it to cut your heart, to build you up, to rebuke you, to encourage you. He does that. He does it through people speaking the word of God. He does it through your devotional time. He does it through sermons that you listen to, maybe books that you read, applying scripture. That's fresh. The spirit is constantly wanting to speak to us through his word. And he does it through a fresh way. And we need to seek that. We need to seek this. We need to seek 
the prophetic voice of God through his word and through people who will speak his word through the power of the spirit and not just the power of the flesh. Now, Australian pastor and author Mark Sayers explains that in a social media world, the power to influence is easier to gain nowadays, but also easier to lose. I'll explain this more Tuesday night when I talk about post-COVID church. But easier to gain nowadays, easier to lose. What does he mean by that? He's saying that in social media and in a YouTube world, everyone can become a powerful voice of influence. Before, you had to be a celebrity. You had to have a certain platform. You had to have a, a, a certain institution or a certain position. Uh, then you could be an influencer. But now anybody can just come up with good content and you can be an overnight success. So the power to influence the masses is easier to gain in a networked world, but it's also easier to lose because the voices of influence are constantly changing. You can, in our world, have a voice today, be canceled tomorrow. You can have a voice today, but some fresher voice comes tomorrow, right, and becomes authoritative. And that's why we have information overload and opinion um, hyper-opinionated. We live in a hyper-opinionated society. So where can we find the still prophetic voice of God? Well, it's through the Holy Spirit prompting proclamation of his word. And now I want to combine tongues and prophecy. I said earlier that you might not have the gift of tongues, but you can seek intimacy. And so what does it look like then to get with your Bible alone with God and just unplug? What does it look like to go into a prayer closet, if you will, your own, it could be your cubicle or your desk or your car, and get alone with your Bible? So it's not your Bible with a bunch of commentaries and books. It's not study where it's so easy to just get into the flesh and use your skill and intellect. And it's not just an emotional experience where there's no word, where you're just saying whatever to God. But mind and spirit together, what does it look like to get into that private space, which is a luxury nowadays, with all the voices trying to influence you. Come today, gone tomorrow, and get with the word of God, but seek intimacy with his word. Seek intimacy, just, just to go before God and, and to say to God, God, I want you to move my heart, and yes, I want to move your heart. I know you're sovereign. I know I can't actually move your heart. But, but I, I want you to look upon me. I know you see all things. But, but I, I want to be in your presence. I, I, I want to just come before you. And maybe you have a praise song going on in the background. But you have the word of God. And you're saying, God, I want to come and behold this wondrous mystery. I want to, what's that song we sing? Christ, your hideaway. I want you to be my hideaway. I want to get alone with you. This takes discipline, especially if you have young kids. They, they don't leave you alone. You don't have time. You can't even go to the bathroom for a moment. So you got to find time. You lose a little bit of sleep, maybe extra 15 minutes before you go to sleep, maybe in the morning. Maybe you have to go to the store, so you just 15 minutes before walking into Vaughn's, lock your car, <laughs> turn on the praise music, get with your Bible, get alone with God. I'm not good at this because life is busy, so this is what I'm trying to work on. And God has convicted me that if we as pastors want to lead in a post-COVID church era, that more than anything, more than leadership principles, more than conferences, we need to learn that each and every day to let the emails drop for a little bit, let the meetings drop, and we need to get alone with God. And not just Bible with commentaries, but Bible with intimacy and prayer, trying to get close to God. Third, how do we know God exists? Final application is that he speaks powerfully through his servants. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about everyday people. We know the prophecy is the only one, uh, that prophecy is not the only spiritual gift, but it's the only one that Paul highlights and says, of all the gifts, when you ask for it, ask for this one. That means that when he's telling everybody, he's not, notice that he doesn't say, pastors, ask for this gift, but everybody else, off limits. You got to go to seminary. He doesn't say that. 
He says, everyone desire prophecy, which means that you shouldn't just be listening to me to hear the word of God or your preachers or teachers until the pastor says it. You know, or, or if, if the pastor doesn't say it to me, no, in your small groups, in your fellowships, in your one-on-ones, on your Zoom calls, on your in-persons, the presence of God is conveyed through spiritual gifts where each and every member begins to speak to each other, prompted by the Spirit. You don't take credit for it. You don't say, oh, it's because I had such an awesome devotional time that I'm so smart, I study the Bible so much, I want to just share with you this encouragement for my devotional. You wouldn't take pride in it, but if you're sitting in your small group, someone shares something, you hear it. Spirit prompts you saying, you know what? This verse is coming to mind. I know it's biblical. It's the word of God. I'm going to speak it with you. That's prophecy. This application of this word, or this morning I did this devotion. I had no idea that my brother or sister is going to be talking about anger issues and they're struggling. And I just read this passage talking about anger. Uh, brother, sister, can I share this with you? It's from the word of God. It's an application of God's word. That is prophetic. That's and everybody should be seeking the prophecy. Some of you are going to be better than others. And if people are constantly convicted each time the Lord prompts you, you have the gift of prophecy. And so I believe in every church there are people who have prophecy. But prophecy must be conveyed through the power of the Spirit. And that's where the people who have the prophetic gift, they have to get intimate with God. They have to get intimate with God. Because... You need to be silent with God. You need to turn everything off in order to learn to listen to his still, small voice. And his voice doesn't give you new revelation. It just helps you how to bring about the word of God at the right time in the right context to say it with courage and clarity and to cause people to be convicted so that they grow. So that's my challenge to myself and to all of us that this week, we would practice getting alone with God, intimate with God and his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And before we pursue our spiritual gifts, Lord, we need to pursue how to hear your spirit speak to us. Because your spirit sealed us, your spirit lives within us, and your spirit explains what it means to be in the spirit through your word. Father, we pray, Lord, that spirit-inspired words of clarity would edify us. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to put down our phones, turn off our computers, to shut things down for a moment, and to learn to be still and know you are God. To learn, Lord, the power that comes when we go into the prayer closet. To see the power of what it means to come before your throne symbolically. To come into your presence. And to not even have to say a word and just to know that you are there and to open your word and to say, speak, O Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would behold this week your wondrous mystery, that you would be our hideaway. Teach us, Lord. And as we all come back, we would be more filled with the Spirit and ready to move towards a full reopening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.